Hello, friends. I want to tell you about Diaspora Co., the company that is building a better spice trade. If you don't know Diaspora Co., let me tell you all about it. You want to know how are they building a better spice trade? Well, first and foremost, they're paying farmers four times the commodity price and three times the fair trade price. And these are not just transactional relationships. These are long-term relationships that they've been building year after year after year that touches over 200 regenerative farms and most importantly, 1,500 farm workers. These are actually some of the very best spices that you can buy on the market. The freshness and potency are unmatched. So if you're thinking right now about how you've had the same dusty spices in your cabinet for two years, head to diasporaco.com and bring home a world of flavor. Free shipping on orders of $70 or more. Welcome to the Stephen Satterfield Show, part of Whetstone Radio Collective. Welcome back to the show. Today's guest is Chef Gregory Gourdet. And this is a special episode for a couple reasons. I had a chance last month to pull up on Chef Gregory in Portland, Oregon at his esteemed restaurant, Khan. And speaking of Khan, just last night, Khan was awarded Best Restaurant in the Country by the James Beard Foundation. So big shout out to you, Chef. And the thing that I love about Khan was its brilliant and coherent depiction of talent and intention. And it is a beautiful thing to watch, to witness, to taste. So thank you for that experience, Chef. Our talk is all over the place. We talk about the origin story of the restaurant, his sobriety journey, which is a big part of his story in Portland, Oregon. And I, speaking of Portland, Oregon, go on to declare it the very best food city in the USA, which I stand on that. It is all here on The Stephen Satterfield Show. Next up, Chef Gregory Gourdet. Chef Gregory Gourdet, thank you for making time. Yeah, my pleasure. It's so good to meet you. Yeah, very nice to meet you. Yeah. And just a pleasure to be with you in your restaurant here in Portland. I appreciate the visit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. definitely, definitely. Speaking of Portland, that's a great place for us to start. Tell me about the experience of living in Portland, because I myself spent about five years living in okay. this city in the early 2000s. You've been here for quite a long time. 16 years. 16 years. Yeah. So what is it like to be a chef in Portland, Oregon in 2023? Mm, that's a big question. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I mean, I think at the top of it all, one of the many reasons why I stay here is being a chef. It's really a wonderful place to be. Mm -hmm. And that's strictly based on the ingredients. Mm -hmm. I think if you think about items first, we live in a place where there's 12 months of growing season. Mm -hmm. We have the coast. We have all this amazing sustainable seafood right at our fingertips. We have tons of mushrooms right at our fingertips. And then these iconic ingredients that are indigenous or mm -hmm. grow here really well in terms of berries. I think we have mm -hmm. some of the best berries in the world. Mm -hmm. Apples, pears, mm -hmm. walnuts, hazelnuts. Yeah, hazelnut capital, right? Yeah. Or one of the major hazelnut Indeed. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we even grow truffles here. Yes. So outside of that, there's so many farms, including tons of urban farms. Totally. Even if I didn't need anything, I would say the farm park and just be in awe of like the amount of produce exactly. that's here. Exactly. 
And, you know, a lot of people in the community are down to grow what you need. Mm-hmm. So it's just really, really cool in so many ways. So I went to culinary school here. Mm-hmm. I know there's, it's no longer here, but um, it was called the Cordon Bleu yep. School. Mm-hmm. And in the early 2000s, you know, one of the hills that I'm prepared to die on is that a lot of the like aesthetic innovation in restaurant cultures, both in the, the dining room aesthetic and also like literally how the bartenders dress really bringing high-end food into spaces that are remarkably and like kind of ridiculously accessible. But there is so much incredible food here and there's so many people here who care so deeply Mm -hmm. about the food that I actually think Portland, Oregon is the number one food city in the U.S. (laughs) (laughs) I I came here just to say that. I really think I really think it is. I really think it I is. I mean, we we've made that list. I mean, whoever's list we've been we've made number one a few times. Well, I'm making my own list, <laughs> and and this is this is really something now that I can say over the course of really 20 years mm-hmm. on my mm-hmm. end of being in the industry, I had the same experience that you had at that farmers market. Mm-hmm. And it totally changed my relationship to food. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, I became a young sommelier mm-hmm. after going to visit wineries mm-hmm. for the first time here yeah. in my life. Yeah, we have wine country. I, I mean, yeah. like some of the best wine in the world. Yep. And it sort of tends to get lumped in with cities like Austin, Texas, mm-hmm. no shade. But like Austin doesn't have the things that you just referenced. Yeah. And neither does Brooklyn, neither does the surroundings. Yeah, yeah. Los yeah. Angeles, like yeah. these other cities that we just kind of assume because of the scale and the concentration of talent that, oh yeah, like these are the best. Yeah. But I actually find the concentration of quality restaurants in Portland to be like kind of staggering. And another part of the story is how like, this is a very, very white town, mm-hmm. but like within the culinary community, I do find it's extremely diverse. Here, you can really get like amazing Thai food. Mm-hmm. You can get really great Caribbean food. You can get West African food. Now you can get Haitian food. Mm-hmm. There's a lot there. And then there's all these food carts that are mm. becoming kind of like this sort of incubator period where all these great concepts are coming up. Yeah, no, that's that's very valid. As far as your own story goes, you said you got here 16 years ago, mm-hmm. which means that you were already kind of in the world of food before you got out here. I believe you you worked at John George. I did. I did. In, in New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so college and then CIA and then seven years with John George at three restaurants and then I made my way out west. You were a real pioneer going to culinary <laughs> school in the 90s. Like, that's a head scratcher back then. You know, my parents are super supportive. They're like, if you want to go to culinary school, we're going to send you to CIA. Mm-hmm. And, and CIA was amazing. It was like the first time everything clicked. I loved every second of it. I was super excited. And it all just kind of made sense. Totally. Yeah. And so the trajectory once you're at CIA, you've been cooking, working for a restaurant like John George is kind of back in that time, like the pinnacle, right? Yeah, so I was the first intern or extern, as we call it, from CIA to go to work at John George. Wow. And it was really pretty early on of that restaurant, mm-hmm. you know, three stars, New York Times. Mm-hmm. John George was like on the line every day. He was like young, he was like very feisty, you Not know? Feisty. Yeah. yeah. So um, the Bruni era. I yeah, think. exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, he literally put me on the line. I would work a station on my, on wow. my extern. 
And that was such a powerful experience that when I graduated from school, I applied. That was the first and only place I applied to as soon as I got out of school. And a week after graduating from CIA, I started working at Jean-Georges at Nougatine, the cafe. Wow. I don't think I, I had a full appreciation just for not only your longevity in the game, but just like how much you were directly under the tutelage of an iconic person mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in our industry. I'm curious about the transition into media mm. because, I mean, you know, speaking of pioneering and so on, the idea that a chef could have a TV career that people would even think of the job as anything other than that, mm -hmm. like a job, was kind of hard to imagine back then. So what was it like for you making a choice to yeah. become a top chef? Sure. I think for me, I realized throughout my career at different times that I have other interests mm -hmm. and I have other capabilities that I'd like to explore. Mm -hmm. And I think basically just starting with Top Chef, you know, Top Chef was always a part of what we knew. Like all my friends were on like seasons one, my coworkers were on season one, two and three, mm -hmm. those types of situations. And like the funny thing is <laughs> the first time I applied for Top Chef, I was like, coked up like beyond like my mind <laughs> like it was like i literally had stayed up all night and like it was like a disaster <laughs> it was so bad well, because <laughs> what, what was the application process like it was we i was literally meeting like a casting producer in person like, in person like yeah. in a hotel room in the city wow you know? so and you're, like you're high on coke <laughs> the casting director yeah i literally been up all night uh, and like went to meet him like probably like in the afternoon or like late morning the next day so that didn't go well. so that didn't go well. <laughs> okay <laughs> and like I, my friend my other friend got cast that season and he was like yeah they just said something was a little bit off about you <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> yeah <laughs> that was also diplomatic <laughs> yeah so um by the time i moved to portland and uh get sober which is like a huge part of my life and like a huge story mm -hmm. that was the second time i applied mm -hmm. and i was just kind of like figuring myself out i was newly sober mm -hmm. probably not that confident mm -hmm. like working at this place i wasn't like so happy at but like it was you know i got sober there so i appreciate the job um and i made it to a big casting room in la they fly to la um, you meet like you walk into the room of like 20 producers and you got to sell yourself. Mm -hmm. So I made it to that that time and I didn't get selected. Mm -hmm. um, so then by the third time, I had done a couple other smaller shows mm -hmm. on like Food Network, etc. Um, I had done a couple little competition things. I'd won a couple things. And yeah, I was just sober and confident. I was running marathons and I had a little better understanding of who I was as a person. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, they were seeking me out and I was like, this is like, I was, I'm gonna pass. Like I've applied a couple of times. It's like this long, arduous application process. It's like really nerve wracking. Cause like the whole time you're waiting, every time you see an LA number, you think it's someone from Top Chef about to call you. Right, so it's right. like, <laughs> you know, it's like this whole thing. And then they were like, no, just come straight to LA and, and meet with us. And I was like, okay, sure. And I got cast. Wow. Yeah, and I made it to runner up. So. Yeah. And so, and what season was that? That was season 12. 12? Season 12 in Boston. And so you had already, like you said, you had friends who were on 
in the first season, the culinary and chef community is very small. Mm -hmm. So had you already observed the ways in which, you know, your homies who were on that show, their careers changed? Because, you know, it's it's hard to get rejected. It happens to me all the time. It does require confidence, right? Mm -hmm. It requires a kind of desire to continue to press on with Mm -hmm. the with the prospect that rejection is possible. Mm -hmm. So what was it that made you, even that second time, want to push through? Yeah, I mean, I also one who like, I love opportunities Mm -hmm. and I love taking advantage of situations where I knew I would never be able to create something like Top Chef on my own. Right. You know, and to be presented with that opportunity, it seemed like just something very exciting, very fun. Yeah. And honestly, like I didn't walk into it knowing if I could win or not. I didn't really know if I could win until like I started Mm -hmm. by like first few episodes in. I'm like, oh, I I can probably win this thing. Yeah. And do you think that was because you had already done some competition cooking that that gave you kind of a competitive advantage on that? Yeah, I'm definitely competitive, but like not against other people. I'm just competitive against myself. Mm -hmm. And like, I want to push myself and I want to excel Mm -hmm. and I want to learn and I want to grow. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that definitely is an, an edge that you need that in life. Mm-hmm. Just it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a tough world out there. No, no <laughs> you know, you know no it's a real tough world. Yeah. So you mentioned too that long distance running mm-hmm. became a part of your life. Indeed. I've run a couple marathons Amazing. myself. What was the catalyst or the switch in your mind that running could be one of these deeper expressions of yourself? Sure. I have a very, very deep relationship with running because After a seven-year drug and alcohol addiction, uh, I got sober, and running is what really got me through it. Mm -hmm. So the first time and only time I went to rehab, I was in New York City. I had gotten fired from Jean-Georges. I had done a couple years at a bunch of, like, smaller, just, like, really shady places, like, around the city, like, cafes and dive bars, and, like, it was just, like, a mess. And I just fell deeper into my addiction with some friends who are now sober, so that's good, you know? Shout out Um, to all y'all. Yeah. Um, But the first time I went to rehab, I started running. Mm -hmm. And I was in outpatient rehab in in Union Square, and I had moved back in with my parents in Dunkston, Queens. I would just run this, like, two-mile loop because I had nothing else to do because I wasn't working. And... It was like awful. I was in so much pain, mm-hmm. but like I just didn't know what else to do because I was just like sitting around. So from rehab to getting sober, it was a good two years. And within that time, I would go up and down. I would work out. I had moved to San Diego for a few months. I left rehab very early without a clear understanding of my addiction, without a clear understanding of what recovery looks like. And I really had left New York like things were burning. It was a mess. I had made any kind of amends with anyone in my life. So I ran, I worked out, um, and then I would just get really drunk. It was like a disaster. I got in a really bad car accident. I got arrested a couple times. So when I finally got sober in Portland, Oregon, this is why Portland is so important to me and so special to me, I would go running at night because before that, I was just going to the bar every night. Mm. So I would get off of work at like 11 midnight and literally go running through Northeast Portland. So I would just be like running at night through the spring and through the summer in Portland, Oregon. And that's how I started training for my first races. Wow. So it's extremely important to me. Man, that is incredible. I also love running at night. Mm-hmm. You feel that the world kind of belongs to you. It's mm-hmm. almost like being in a video game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is such an inspiring story on so many levels. I'm so glad that you got well. Yeah. I'm so glad that Portland could be that refuge for you. Yeah. 
yeah, let's talk about cons since that's where we are. That's your thing. <laughs> I mean, one of the reasons that I have exploited this podcast to meet people like you, you know, is also so I can eat your food. So I've always. Well, I got to be honest, like, I'm like a huge fan of yours. Okay, well, mutual, mutual, mutual. <laughs> So excited when I heard you were coming. Mutual okay. <laughs> love and respect, but reciprocity. So yeah, this is one of I think it. I can just say like probably the most high profile restaurant in the country right now. Certainly among the most high profile. It opened up last summer mm-hmm. August. Um, yeah. in August. Mm-hmm. So we're coming up on like al- almost yeah. a year ish. Yeah. yeah, we're almost uh, there. Right, we're and so there. how's it going? It's going really good. Yeah. I mean, I got to be honest. It's it's a lot of a lot. Yeah. And we have growing pains and we have challenges. But I think for an opening, I could not be more grateful or thankful for how we've been received mm-hmm. by the public, mm-hmm. how we've been received by the community. Mm-hmm. And the team I have is absolutely amazing. I've never been surrounded by a stronger team. Mm-hmm. And I'm super grateful for that. It's a lot. You know, mm-hmm. we serve over 200 guests every day. We served like 270 guests yesterday. We have that on wow. the books tonight. Wow. So we're all in this space together at all times, yeah. you know, communicating with each other, working with each other on display, you know, mm-hmm. all the good and, mm-hmm. you know, even the little trickier moments. The tense moments. Yeah, you know, so yeah. it's all in this place. So yeah. I, I oftentimes I call this a social experiment, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. But the other side of that is I've just been so grateful to share the story of Haiti. And really, I was curious to see how the Haitian community would come out Mm -hmm. and they show up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we talk about Portland not being diverse. And I'm not going to say there's a lot of Haitians here (laughs) compared to like anywhere. But I am shocked at how many Haitians show up. People who have been adopted and they do their ancestry and they find out they're Haitian. We get all these types of stories. Yeah. You know? Wow. I feel like that same, similar kind of pride, like on a community level, Mm -hmm. like it's, it's not surprising to me that the Haitian diaspora is like coming Mm -hmm. to put their arms around you because you're the most visible Haitian chef that we've we've Mm -hmm. had, you know? And I know that also comes with its own challenges or maybe I don't want to be presumptuous, but like, yeah, right? What has that been like for you? So I think just walking into the space, it throws some people off. And I've definitely had some people say they get culture shock when they come into con because A, if you're coming from like, Florida, and then, like you go to Haitian restaurants in Florida, yeah. and then you come to Cannes in yeah. Portland, Oregon, yeah. <laughs> and you see this very contemporary space. Yeah. It's white oak. There's yeah. like you know Brazilian quartzite. Yeah. There's like this crazy gold ceiling. Yeah. It's just not the typical setting that you get served Haitian food. But like that's what we're trying to do. We're just changing the narrative of where we eat Haitian food mm-hmm. and how Haitian food is served. Mm-hmm. You know. There's definitely a lot of the menu, which is traditional Haitian food, because I don't want anyone to leave here without understanding what the true Haitian experience is. Mm-hmm. So we have the John John mushrooms, which my parents send us, that's steamed into rice. Duyak sauce which is like a very classic Haitian rice and bean dish. 
Guyo, which is the national dish of Haiti, legume, which is like the stew. We import chocolate and coffee from Haiti as well. So there, all those dishes are on the menu. We walk you through it. You know, those are like our traditionally inspired dishes. Mm-hmm. After that, we have a portion of the menu that's inspired by Haitian ingredients, keeping within like the Haitian realm of spices, applied to seasonal ingredients as well. And then after that, we dip into influences. We dip into West Africa because that's where we came from when we were enslaved. And, you know, when France just, you know, did what they did. Mm-hmm. There's also a, a little bit of uh, Pan-Caribbean influences here and there because that's also the story of Haiti as well. So all the food comes from a place of culture or a place of seasonality. So yeah, so within that, this is a Haitian restaurant, but like at the same time, I cook a certain way and I have a certain style and I'm not scared to apply my style to Haitian flavors. So things might be like a little bit different to some folks, Mm -hmm. you know, but the flavors there, the the story, the authenticity is there. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I want people to leave understanding what Haitian food is. And that's really important to us. I love that. So basically you've become an ambassador, you know, you're a culinary ambassador of sorts. I know that work gets thrown around, but like, I really do think that is the work or at least a portion of the work that Mm -hmm. you're engaged in here. You're in the tea business mm-hmm. now, too. <laughs> so I would love to talk about your endeavors in tea. Sure. What you're making, why it's of interest, mm-hmm. and just what your plans and hopes are for your tea project. Sure. I mean, we collaborated with Smith Tea Maker, which is like a local Smith tea company. And, and Stephen Smith, legendary Portlander. We lost him a few years ago. Um, but he, you know, had stash tea. He sold that, made tons of money, and then came back and was like, hey, I want to, you know, make cool tea again. Interesting. Um, So we worked with him early on and his head tea makers to create multiple teas over the years in collaboration. And then when we did our pop-up, we were doing our Winter Village pop-up, and it was all outside because, again, it was like pre-vaccine pandemic, mm-hmm. and there was literally no indoor dining for the entire time. And mm-hmm. we were in outdoor restaurants, so we were able to stay open the entire time. Wow. But it was a dead of winter. Yeah. So the yurts were heated, that music. We were serving this pineapple upside-down cake with Haitian spices. It was like cinnamon, sarnies, coconut caramel, lime zest, almond extract. And we wanted something to serve with it, and I wanted to serve Haitian Jean, which is like traditional Haitian ginger tea. This is something my dad just always made. It was always like in a pot on the stove, like throughout most of the year, not just the winter. But it's just like fresh ginger and cinnamon sticks and starnies that we would always get from Haiti. Our relatives would bring it. And you just simmer that and you have that maybe sweetened or maybe just straight up. So we work with Smith Tea Maker on creating a blend. And because we had to use dried ingredients, we, we worked for quite some time on creating a blend that recreated that potency mm-hmm. um, of the fresh aromatics. Right. So it has a little bit of pineapple oil in it, it has a little bit of black pepper, it has a few other things in it. And we've used that for quite a bit. The tea itself is, is delicious. Mm-hmm. And it's also coming at a time where I've noticed chefs expanding beyond the walls of restaurants Mm -hmm. into more like CPG stuff, Mm -hmm. you know. I'm seeing more chefs on shelves, Mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. So what are your aspirations? And are you kind of seeing and feeling that among your peer group? Sure. Well, Well, I mean, I think that's very true. I think 
from my perspective, Portland is a very, another reason why I love Portland, it's a very maker-based town and community. Mm -hmm. So like we have a lot of people, a lot of smaller businesses who are making this and making sauces. And we have a very, very strong history of collaborating with each other. See, um, this is another example of Portland actually being way ahead of the curve and getting no credit or recognition yeah. for it. I'm just yeah. saying. So yeah, so I mean, even I'm um, familiar with Jacobson Salt, but yeah. you know, I mean, he's like a national flake salt, mm -hmm. one of the few American sea salts. And I remember when he was literally selling dime bags of sea salt, yeah. <laughs> you know, like in parking lots. The need to you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, like I was there. He was like, I was like, oh, this looks like a bag of coke. It's so yeah. funny. Like <laughs> I thought it was like hilarious. You know, yeah. I was sober by then. Yeah. But I just thought it was great. He was selling like like dime bags of like yeah. little baggies of salt. Like, <laughs> you know, my life has taken an interesting <laughs> turn. Yeah. So yeah, and now. He's like a you know major American global brand. Yeah. So, but yeah, the tea is sold to Smith Tea, and our next endeavor is coffee. Okay. So, Ian Deadstock Coffee, a very very good friend of ours, black coffee roaster in town, nice. old kind of Nike guy. He transitioned very into sneaker culture, and, uh, and I fell in love with his coffees, lots of dark roast, and you know really really good stuff. I knew that we wanted to collaborate with him with a con coffee mm -hmm. and he presented the Haitian coffee and we were tasting things were, which were spiced with lots of spices, which is like a very traditional style of Haitian coffee. Mm -hmm. And we came up with our blend, cinnamon, star anise, vanilla beans. We used this blue mountain bean that is grown in Haiti. It's roasted in town, mm -hmm. it's spiced in town, and then we serve it here. So that's next to hit the shelves nice. sometime this year. That's dope, yeah. man. Yeah. Well, I mean, you do have your hands full clearly, mm -hmm. but beyond the restaurant mm -hmm. and these other endeavors, because mm -hmm. I know you have a lot of interest. Mm -hmm. Are you thinking about other things? Are you thinking about the future or are you yeah. kind of like full with what you've got here? I mean, I'm working on my second cookbook. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. That's a big one. Yeah. I, I just loved writing my first cookbook and it was like a crazy three-year project and I finished it in the yeah. pandemic. Yeah. You know, I finished it home alone in the pandemic, but I had all this time. It was amazing. Yeah. I think that's why I turned into a 400 page like, yeah. opus. Yeah. But I feel like the cookbook is the one thing that I have that involves less people. In terms of creative direction, I feel like I have the most control in my books. Yeah. Whereas anything involving the restaurant, we have like a full team that has to be a part of every single decision. So it's like my little passion project. Yeah. So it's it's kind of along the same lines of my first book. It's healthy. It's focusing on cultures of color throughout the world and kind of like what family cooking means to them. So it's all based on easy home recipes from all around the world. You know. All right. Yeah. I feel like we have a long way to go with our team here in terms of just like getting this place super, super stable. And, you know, I, I just want to do the right thing by my team and my community. So I'm just super focused on Khan right now. I feel you, man. Yeah. It's a lot to focus on. Yeah. And speaking of that, we're cutting into your prep time right now. It's all good. It's all good. It's uh, all good. So I'm going to let you literally go cook because I'm going to pull up at the, yeah. your spot here tonight. I so. can't wait. All right, Jeff. It was a pleasure. Thank man. you so much, dude. Really, really yeah, appreciate amazing. You. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you to executive producer Celine Glacier, sound engineer Max Kolachuk, editor Ilgen Kordogan, and associate producer Quentin LeBeau. Special thank you to music composer Catherine Yang for all of the music that you heard on this episode, and Alexandra Bowman for the outstanding cover art. You can follow us and learn more about Whetstone Media at our website, whetstonemedia.com. 
or on Instagram and YouTube at Whetstone Media. We'll be back next week. 